restored to health from this hopeless state of mind and from this hopeless state of mind called the obsession and hopeless state of mind called the physical allergy uh, craving. So the obsession is what brings me to the drink. The obsession, the allergy is what keeps me in the drink, craving for more. Um, my experience is I have recovered from, from that single hopeless state of mind and body. And um, an interesting, so here's a way to look at, it's very interesting way to look at hopelessness. So some of you may have heard of anaphylactic shock. Some people get it from a bee sting. But anaphylactic shock is a shock that's so deep that a person can appear dead. And the peoples don't change, um, to, you know, because of light. Um, breathing doesn't seem like it's happening. Heartbeat is so low, you can barely get a pulse. You know, today, because of modern medicine, when a person has anaphylactic shock, you know, that's, you know, they know the state you're in. They know right away because they have machines and stuff, right? But in the 1800s, there was these stories of people coming back from the dead. And what it was is people would, you know, the, the mortician would be in the morgue and all of a sudden the drawer would open up and some guy would get out who they thought was dead, just woke up. That would, you know, that would probably scare the crap out of the poor guy. But, you know, if, if you're the mortician, that actually um, where the whole premise of living dead came, zombies and all that. But the, the premise of it here is they had anaphylactic shock. Now, let's look at anaphylactic shock in a different way. Let's say we all got an anaphylactic shock in here. We all got a bee sting, let's just say. And we're in the 1800s. <laughs> so we all get anaphylactic shock. And, we're, you know, this guy comes, this doctor comes in the room and he goes, they're all dead. He looks at their eyes. There's, no, you know, the way they used to look at it then with light and stuff. They don't see any breathing. Don't hear, don't put the air to the chest. Don't hear a heartbeat. So they call, these guys are all dead. Let's send them to the mortician. Mortician looks at him again, calls him the undertaker, starts building the pine boxes, and the grave digger starts digging the graves in the ground. So what happens is, since we're all dead in those people's eyes, they put us in a pine box, nail it shut, and they put us about eight feet down on the ground and bury us. Now, think of this for a second. When you woke up in the ground and the dark box, not knowing what's going on. No one could hear cry for help or hear you scream. It's the best example I could think of a hopeless condition. That, you know, what would it take you to get out of the situation? A miracle had to happen. Sometimes a miracle. What, what else, you know? But you would be praying your ass off. You're not going to wonder if what Jesus, what, uh, what God looks like or who your higher power is or if God's male or female, you know, you could be praying for a miracle. Hypothetically, we're all in a pine box. We're in a hopeless state, hopeless condition of mind and body that we can't get out of on our own power. It might be the only thing in your life you could never beat on your own power. And we prayed tried numerous ways to beat it, hoping for miracles. And the tense of, you know, promises says the problem, the obsession has been removed. That's what recovered is. That right there is a miracle. Our book is filled with miracles. Or as a book calls it a miracle of healing. And that the steps, you know, so they're saying the steps do, we know the steps perform miracles. You know, and he gets, he gets us out of that condition, out of the pine box, so to speak, and back to normal life. And that's the miracle of it. That's the miracle of healing. We don't think of that. So uh, back to the book. To show others precisely how we recovered is the main purpose of this book. This is a very important sentence. It took me years to really understand this in a certain way. So when your big book the first time is handed to you, maybe it was at a rehab, maybe it was at your first meeting, you put your name in it. Maybe you put your sobriety date in it. Maybe you put your phone number in it. But is it really your book? Is it your book? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's my book. 
But see, when you do the steps, you don't need to fully understand the steps or even comprehend them and just do them. You know, you have a sponsor to guide you through the book. You, you won't fully understand the steps until you take another through it. It's impossible to fully understand them. The more you take through it, the more understanding, the more you know them. So the main purpose of this book is to show another how to recover. In hindsight, your big book is going to be more valuable to the people you take through it. You've never read your book as much as you read it with other people, that the people you're taking through it. So my big book was never really mine. It's for the person, the people I've taken through it. It says uh, back to the book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. I mean, uh, well, we don't have to argue this book is flawless and, you know, vir virtually flawless. I mean, pretty much. It's, it, it's, all I'd say it's perfect. But we don't have to sell this book. Just let, you know, let the book sell, let, let the book do the talking. So let's let, let's let the book do the talking here. It says, we think that this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Notice, notice what he says there. He says, everyone, everyone doesn't leave anyone out. Will help everyone, you know, he deemed this for anyone that could help. Um, he says, many do not comprehend the alcoholic is a very sick person. You know, back then, no one, you know, no one did. I'm not saying A members, I'm saying society in general. No one did. I mean, they looked at, they put them in, in mental institutions. They looked at them as the worst people in the world. Criminals, you know, they just, it was horrible. And very few today look at the alcoholic as a sick person. So they were still, were just getting to know, understand alcoholism, just starting to happen, just starting to get around to it. And they're just starting to look rehabs. They're starting to look at the big book as maybe the most important thing offered there. Even churches are doing that. And he says, and besides, we are sure that our way of living has its advantages after all. It is important to remain anonymous because we are too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal appeals which may result from this publication. Being mostly business and professional folk, we're not, we could not well carry our own occupations at such an event. This is very important right here. We would like it understood that our alcoholic work is an avocation. So what's an avocation? Avocation is something you do for pleasure and not pay, right? Something you do outside of work, right? Such as taking them through the steps or just helping people. I'm gonna stick with taking people through the steps, but something you do that enriches your life and makes other people's lives better as well. And it should never feel like work. If your step work does feel like work or you're stressed, that's why. Because you're putting stress in there. How do we get stress from sponsoring from, with people? We get too wrapped up in the person, you know, we're working with, you know, trying to take them to the steps. And we stress why they're not doing the steps. How come this guy, I took him all the way to step four and now he doesn't call me? Or why would the person make an amends or they won't sponsor And rather than staying locked up in that self-centered fear, because we are there for everybody, when that happens, we do inventory. If we stay in that stress, you if, and you continue in that fear, you won't like sponsoring your quit, right? Because it feels like work. Again, when it feels like that, do inventory. Write down the fear, discuss another, let God remove it. Same formulas we're doing 49 step 10. You know, and that's what we have to look at. It says when writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we we urge each fellowship member to admit his, his personal name, just uh, designate himself instead of a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Very earnestly, we ask the press also to observe this request, for otherwise we shall be greatly handicapped. This sounds like tradition number 11. And so tradition number, tradition number 11 is our public relations policy is based on traction rather than promotion. We all need to maintain perfect anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. I'm going to read the long form of that. So this is very important to understand the long forms of the traditions. Our relations with general public should be characterized by personal anonymity. We think A ought to avoid sensational advertising. Our names and pictures as AA members ought not be broadcast, filmed, or publicly printed. Our public relations should be guided, and this is important right here, by the principle of attraction rather than promotion. There is never a need to praise ourselves. We feel it better to let our friends recommend us. Wow. I mean, the last two sentences in that long form were guided by attraction rather than promotion. Right? There's never a need to praise ourselves. I'm good at these steps. Oh, can I sponsor you? No, you let them come to you and ask you. Your friends will recommend you. That's the best way to do it. Because if you go up to a bunch of people and say, can I sponsor you all the time? You're going to get people who don't want to do it. Attraction rather than promotion. It's right there, too. It says, we are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. Now it sounds like tradition number eight. You see where the traditions came from? They didn't come out to the 50s. This is in the forward of the first edition. So we're not an organized in the conventional sense of the words. So tradition number eight is alcoholics not should, re, should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Let's go to the long form again. Alcoholics not only should remain forever non-professional. We define professionalism as the occupation of counseling alcoholics for fees or higher. Very important there. But we may employ alcoholics where, where, where they are going to perform those services for which we might otherwise have engaged non-alcoholics. Such special services may be um, recompensed, but our usual AA 12-step work is never to be paid for. So this is extremely important here. A lot of people, I think it happened to a lot of people. It happened to me. I was going to school for counseling I was loving it. I had an internship. Um, I didn't love the places I, I was internshipping for because they didn't necessarily promote, you know, rehabs are. They're not steps are, are kind of afterthought. But, you know, I was a volunteer staff at a rehab. And I was already doing a book study there. I was already sponsoring there. Um, loved it. And then one of my close friends, an amazing book number, took over that program as program director and what he wanted to rehab was he wanted the counselors to be book numbers and so he did that and then he switched to what was called recovery dynamics recovery dynamics you're not familiar with the Joan McQuaid from Joe and Charlie wrote it and it's basically big book each week a different step for 12 weeks of react and it's awesome and so he wanted his counselors, and I was like, oh, this is perfect. Uh, I get to do this and get paid for. I'm going to school for counseling. You know, and this guy wants, you know, he's, he's paying for me to get certified in this. I did all that. Re, you know, so this is reteaching the steps. So I had to go to book study, and I thought this would be amazing and perfect. But when I, but when I started volunteering, in that, when I was volunteering in that, that position, it wasn't the same once I got paid for it. I had to be at work on time. I had to stand by their standards. I had to do other stuff. The book studies were critiqued. I had to watch what I say. It wasn't fun and rewarding anymore. But also, most of all, was echoing in my heart was I was being paid for something that I was going to do. You know, it wasn't. It, I didn't feel like I was giving back. I realized I can't do twelve step work and get paid forever. I'm talking big book work, especially since this program is built around freely giving yourself to other alcoholics. So I decided, I went to my close friend and I said, give me back the volunteer position. He goes, you crazy? I'll pay you 10 more dollars an hour. And I said, no. I realized within the realm of the spirit of professionalism, I cannot be paid for it. You know, there's no spirit in, you know, in there. 
And I mean, I'm state counselor for quite a while and did that, you know, treatment center stuff, but never again. I would bring up the big book when needed. I would talk the big book when needed those places, but I never done a big book study where I got paid for. Just that one time. And I thought it'd be perfect. It says there are no fees or dues whatsoever. Your requirement is a membership desire to stop drinking. So now it's tradition number three. Your requirement for membership desire to stop drinking. Now listen to the long form of that. This is tradition number three long form. Our membership ought to include all those who suffer from alcoholism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover, nor ought a membership ever to, be, to depend upon money or conform, conformity. Any two, this is, I love this, any two or three alcoholics gathered together for, for sobriety may call themselves an A group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. The one thing about Tristan 3, the only desire, there was a controversy about that because Oxford group members in New York were big into the Oxford group. It was a, it wasn't necessarily a tradition they had, but it's pretty much to be a member, you said, believe in God. You know, to, to, to become a member, to eventually get yourself in the door to take all their steps to be a member. And Jim Burwell, who helped Bill with this book, very closely was off, you know, you know, a fast, fast thinker. And he looked at those guys and he said, uh, no, all you desire to stop drinking off the top of his head. And that right there, one of the most beautiful lines that we've ever had. It's back to the book. We're not affiliated with, this is, this part's very important too. We're not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, nor we oppose anyone. We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. So allied with, uh, uh, um, you know, me, of course, means associated. I, what he's trying to, to, what this influenced him with this, we're not affiliated with any particular faith, was because a lot of people, when they they were inviting him to the, the, the new, you know, AA wasn't AA yet, but you know, originally they were the drunk squad. Even before Bill was around, as a branch of Oxford group, a lot of the drunks would hear Oxford. Go, I don't want to go there, and they had the drunk squad going for quite a while, even after even after the future AA was formed, and they were Cal- they got kind of kicked out of the Oxford group, went to Calvary Missions, and they started with the future AA, and a lot of people wouldn't that they wanted to bring in there from the rehabs and stuff because they would think that Oxford group and that they're trying to say we're not, they don't want to say we're not affiliated to the Oxford group, but not only that, but any faith, sect, or domination, you know. Um, that sounds like, you know, part from our preamble. We hear that in our preamble. And a lot of that preamble is taken from this this one too, but I'm going to read the A preamble part of it. The only requirement for membership is desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for any membership. We're still supporting to our contributions. We're not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy or other. Do we endorse or we oppose any causes? Our primary purpose is to stay sober and, uh, and help others to achieve sobriety. That's from the A preamble. And the part that stands out the most in there for me is, of course, our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is carrying the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, right? Today, the primary purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous and even CA and other groups is to stay sober one day at a time, to get lots of time. You know, more people, you don't hear people brag about, I you know, did their fifth step or this and that too often, or you, don't get a, or you don't get a chip for that. But people get lots of time when we get paid for, not paid, we get a chip for being away from drink. Carrying this message is so low on the totem pole today makes me sick to my stomach and it gets worse. I mean, go to a meeting and, you know, go around the meeting and just ask people, what's, what's the message? What is, what is mention the message in this book? I guarantee you will be shocked that you'll get six different from six people get six different things that have nothing to do with it. That people have no clue what the message is anymore. So whose duty is it? It's our duty. That's why we're doing the book studies like this. So we can understand the message. Besides the message is as simple as this. I have spiritual awakening and you can too. As simple as that. 
you know? It's the 12 steps is the, is, is the bread and butter of it. See what else this book says. We shall be interested to hear from those who are getting results from this book, particularly those who have commenced work with other alcoholics. So they're talking about, you know, they would go around and ask these people, hey, how's it going with this? We, we should like to, to be helpful to such causes. Inquiring by scientific, medical, religious societies will be welcome. Alcoholics Anonymous. So that brings us to the forward to the second edition. Figures given from the forward described in the fellowship as it was in 1955. So, some of this I explained when I did the history. So I won't go as deep as I did there, but I'm kind of take I'll, I'll keep it up at the pace, so to speak. Um, so it says. Since the original forward to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle was taking place. I love that. Or, which means a basically a miracle that didn't really cost you anything. Our early, earliest printing voiced the hope that every alcoholic whose journey will find the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Already continues the early text, two-thirds, three-thirds, Five, five of us have sprung up in other communities. So, you know, Bill's, his mindset, his goal, that AA could be for everybody, right? So he wrote this book, and he wanted it in black and white. I said this before, these guys had a no-fail attitude, and they knew they were on something special, and they knew Bill was special too. And they knew the main thing they wanted to do it wasn't about them. It was about changing the way people looked at alcoholism, changing the way the future of alcoholism would be, and it did. Turn it on its ear. I mean, you just go back, and like I, when I explained it before, you know, when they, before it existed, when a, friend, when a friend or family member was suffering from chronic drinking, they would drop them off in an asylum, and they may never see him again. They might even call the asylum and say, we don't know who that is. After it existed, when a family member, you know, or, or a sick friend, you know, went to court or something, they would be told they can go home with them as long, you know, as long as there are people doing the steps and stuff like that. Some of the A members. And, you know, they knew it worked. People knew it worked. Society knew it worked. It grew fast, but I don't even think these early A members had a clue or were prepared for how big it could get. Let's see what this says. 16 years have, have uh, elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955, our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed there are like 6,000 6, groups whose membership is far above 150,000 Recovered alcoholics. So let's talk about growth. I'm going to share the screen here with you guys. We're going to look at growth here. So I always love facts. And just the facts. Um, so 1935, you had two members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and you had zero groups. I guess you could call them a group, according to what they said. And 19, five years later, five years later, 1940, you had 1,400 members and 50 groups. In 1945, you had almost 13,000 members and 556 groups. 1950, you had 96,000, 96,000 groups. Could you imagine being a member from just, you know, 10 years prior or eight, you know, or whatever big book, you know, 38, when the big book was, was kind of was 50 members and all of a sudden there's 90, a hundred thousand members. That's insane. 1955, 156,000 members. That's crazy. 62, 
hunter groups. Now, again, just imagine one of the first 40 members. The miracles taking place, guys coming out of caves and being reborn again. They get to witness that. Now look at this, 1960, 162,000, eight, over 8,000, almost 8,700 groups. 1970, 300,000, 311,450, 16,000 groups. Now, what happened next is called the recovery boom. In the 60s, they opened rehab for the first time, and I'll, I'll get to that later, all that changed. They all also for good and bad reasons. Um, but recovery boom happened. You also had court slips. You also had DUIs happening. And so from 1970 to 1980, we've got 600,000 more members. 600,000, 4,200 groups. 1990, one point, I'm sorry, we have over a million there, 1.9 million groups. I mean, members in 93,000 groups. In 2000, 1.2.1 million. 100,000 groups, 2010, 2.2 million. And then give or take 2,000, I've heard it be 26. A, I don't think it likes to admit anymore how many are in AA because of recovery rates being low. But we'll get into that probably next week, and that's always fun. But 25, you know, it's never really, they've never changed over 25, uh, not many members, you know, and there are more than 135 groups, A groups around the world. A's literature is translated, translated over to 100 languages, over 100 languages. And the biblical history is, I mean, uh, yeah. The, you know, that, that, that's crazy. Back to the book says, groups are found in each of the United States, all of province of Canada. Now, those guys... Um, AA has flourished communities in British Isles, Scandinavia countries, South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. Hey, we've seen some of the, that sounds like Bigfoot Compendium. Um, all today, um, promising beginnings have been made in some 50 foreign countries um, and U.S. possessions. Some, some are now taking shape in Asia. Many of our friends encourage us by saying, saying that this is but a beginning and only uh, an arguably a much larger future ahead. I'm gonna close this thing down. So here's the interesting thing here. We're talking 1955. Our country, it was very segregated and we're going to get that in a few weeks about segregation and Alcoholics Anonymous and who broke that. We'll get that soon. Um, very soon. But it also wasn't, you're also 10 years out of World War II. You weren't supposed to, you know, if you were anyone that we were at war with, you know, you had a lot of German people changing their names in the United States. And, but, you know, we may have been the only thing at that time where things were happening around the world. So it was a trailblazing. There's a lot of trailblazing going on here. It's pretty deep. Let's look at this. The Spark. I used to go to a book study. My favorite name for ever a book study was just called The Spark. I love that name. It was called for the, my friend's book study, The Spark. The Spark that was to flare into the first A group was struck at Akron, Ohio in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker, that's William Griffith Wilson, Bill Wilson, and an Akron physician, that's Robert Holbrook Smith, Dr. Bob. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession. Oh, I thought they didn't mention the word obsession in the big book. But there it is had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend and who had been a contact with the Oxford group of that day. 
He had been so greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Duncan and so forth, a New York specialist who were going to do a whole two weeks or three weeks on him pretty soon, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who is now kind of no less than a medical saint. Also, Bill considered him a founder by eight members. And those whose story early in our society appears in the next few chapters, in the next chapters. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism, the allergy obsession. Now, the, the obsession aspect, maybe not that word, was people were familiar with that. They just said the guy, let's be nuts. It's a mental thing. Let's put a mental institution. Let's scramble their brains. Don't drink again. You know? But no one wanted to believe about this physical factor. We'll get into that. You know, how sick or change the world. Though he could not accept all tenets of the Oxford group, just like 30, I mean, all together, overall, you know, maybe hundreds, you know, but he was convinced a need for more inventory, confession, a personality defect, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and a necessity for belief and dependence on God. So, Basically, what Bill was offering people was inventory. Well, he did it with God first, the Oxford group way. But, you know, so free from the pence upon God and inventory, confession, restitution, helping others, prayer meditation. And so it's only five. And it's, let's see what the book says. Prior to joining the Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic. It's like, that's more than a theory. It's fact. But he, was, but he was only successful keeping himself sober with six members. He failed with them all. I don't say failed. No one fails an alcoholic. Don't ever think you failed an alcoholic. The worst thing you could think is you failed an alcoholic. It, it's a person just not ready yet. You have to be pretty badly mangled before you do this, it says. You know, so what happened was is he was only successful keeping himself sober. He thought he failed with all these people. But Lois pointed out, you didn't fail, you're sober. How could you be a failure? So he asked Silkworth why he wasn't keeping others sober. And Silkworth told him, you know, what are you saying? He says, I'm bringing God. He says, give him the hardcore medical facts. First allergy obsession. Boom, first step of recovery is born. Power over alcohol. So remember... When we covered this before, Bill telling, you know, Lois, you know, he can't keep himself sober. She said, you know, go talk to Silver. That's what I'm talking about. And when Silver told him that, you know, the first person he talked to would bring it to would be, you know, Dr. Bob. You know, he goes, you're telling him to turn, to turn their life over to God. He goes, given the hardcore medical facts, given the allergy obsession, they didn't know why they're alcoholic. That's, that's how, I mean, think about that. What would your step work be like if you, if they just said you're just a drunk? Would you even look at step two? Would you even want step two? Would you turn your will and life over the care of God? Or, or back over yourself so you can quit drinking? And our prayer before that was, whatever God might be, wherever he is, you know, please take away this bottle from my, out of my hand. It didn't work. Yeah. But, you know, Bill added powerless over alcohol and six deaths are born. Powerless, inventory, confession, restitution, helping others, prayer and meditation. Powerless, inventory, confession, restitution, prayer and meditation. Bill kind of remolded a little bit than the Ox group had because he had an inventory and there wasn't a part of that. So the first person he talked to was... Like I said, Dr. Bob, let's go back to the book here. The broker had gone to Akron on a, on a business trip venture, which had collapsed. It just didn't go anywhere. Really didn't go anywhere. I think he even had the wrong date. Leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. So he's in that Mayflower Hotel. He's all scared. He hears the crowd in the bar. He hears the laughter. And it, what really got him was he says he didn't really want to drink. He really wanted just to go in the bar and feel the, 
His social instinct wanted to be fulfilled. He wanted the social part of it, but it scared him because he knows what happened when he wanted that social part. And is it probably the obsession talking to him? He suddenly realized in order to save himself, he must carry the message to another alcoholic. The alcoholic turned out to be the acronym physician, Dr. Bob. So Bill, you, you know, he's in that Mayfair hotel and he looks at the phone directory. He picks his uh, Reverend Tunks out of the registry because his name looked crazy. He thought it was a strange name. That guy, Tunks, speared him towards Oxford Group member Norman Shepard. But Norman Shepard didn't really deal with alcoholics, but he goes, I know someone who deals with alcoholics. And it's Henry uh, Sieberling. And Henrietta had a close friend that she, she had tried to get sober. I think trying was be like, you got to quit. You, you know, can't come around here no more. And that was Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob, when she went to Dr. Bob, she says, got to come to my house. I want you to meet someone. He wasn't going to go. And Ann's all, you're going over there. He goes over to Henry S. house. And he goes, tell him he's got five minutes. Now, he had no idea what he was getting into because that turned into a five-hour conversation. See what the book says. This physician repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but it failed. Well, he tried spiritual means. He tried the Oxford group, but he never did the Oxford group principles. He had done some of them. My, here's the thing. I'm going to backflip a little bit on this. If you do the steps and you decide not to sponsor, are you doing the steps? No. If you decide not to make your amends, are you doing the steps? No. I don't care how, what step you're on. If you skip the, if you mess with the recipe, you're not going to get the results you want and you're going to be in fear. So what happened to Dr. Bob, the same thing. His refusal to make amends. He thought he's this great Oxford group member, but I'm not going to make amends. He's not going to get the results. It's why he failed. His refusal to make restitution, one of their tenants. He's a secret drinker, secret drinker. He feared, you know, if, if he makes his amends, it's all in his head, right? You know, we, we, we plan out every single piece of an amends before we make it, right? What if the person says the government? What if they say this? What if they say that? Right? His thing was, what if I lose my practice? What if they, you know, spread shame upon me? That erroneous thinking kept him drinking and almost dying. And it still happens today. But when the broker gave him doctor's description of the alcoholism, in his hopelessness, that pine box, the vision began to pursue it, the spiritual remedy for his, for his malady with a wellness he had never before been able to muster because he admits. So let's see, what did he tell him different? Let's go to page 80 from Dr. Uh, Dr. Bell's Nightmare, page 80. And let's see what, this is great to hear Dr. Bob describe it. It's where it says the question, the question which might naturally come into mind would be, what did this, what did the man do or say that was different from what others had said before? Or he's a doctor. You know, must be, look what he says. It must be remembered that I had read a great deal of books, a great deal. I'm sorry. I read a great deal and talked to everyone who knew or thought they knew about such a alcohol. Because most people probably tell me alcohol is not alcoholics. We got to take all those courses. And when you're, if you want to stay up in the medical field on top of things, you have to keep going to these con conventions and stuff. So he thought he knew everything about alcoholism until he talked to this guy. But this man, this was a man who had experienced many years of frightful drinking. So this sounds like the first drunk he's ever talked to, who had most of, most of all drunkards experiences known to man, but had been cured by the very means I've been trying to employ. Let us say the spiritual approach. He wanted the spiritual approach, but he didn't want to do the amends. He gave me information about the subject of alcoholism was undoubtedly helpful. So Silver's description of that allergy, you know, the hopelessness of the allergy obsession. Now think of this for a second. If he would have gone, gone to him and never talked to Silkworth before he left, it would have been in that 
by you know the conversation would last five minutes, we wouldn't be sitting here. Crazy thinking that. So look at this. This is italic writing in a story. Of far more importance was the fact that he was the first living human. Repeat that: the first living human with whom I had ever talked to, who knew what he was talking about in regards to alcoholism from actual experience. He had never talked to anyone before. He had never seen someone before that was recovered. He, Bill was like the walking dead to him. He's like, what? And he knew this guy wasn't bullcrap in his way through it. He wasn't faking until he made it or, or pretending he was a rock. He was, he was it. And he's sitting right in front of him. Says, in other words, he's talked my language. He knew all the answers. And he certainly didn't, didn't, certainly not because he picked them up in his reading. Actual experience. So when he broke down the allergy, it blew his mind. That was May 12, 1935. You, know, you can't, you know, you know, I'm not going to rewrite the whole story I told before, but I'll tell a variation of it. So Bill lived with Bob, um, and and Ann for several weeks trying to work with Bob. And it was Bob was a tough enough to crack, especially with the with the amends. They argued about it a lot. And they tried to get sober up a couple of group members, but then Bob would you know sneak a drink here and there. And he got a couple of weeks sober at one point. But then he decided on June second uh to go on a the medical uh American Medical Association convention in Atlantic City on a train, which they drank on trains. Some people just wanted trains to drink, rolling bar. You know, he drank as soon as he got on the train, he was in a block all the way to Atlantic City, all the way for the whole week. And he comes home June 7th and detoxes for three days. He got a, he, he, only reason he got out of bed was because he had to do a surgery. And Bill gave him a beer and a shot to steady his nerves for surgery. And he used to get home around 7 p.m. after surgery. And or a phone call would come in, always out of surgery. Hey, I made it through. I don't know what time I'm going to be home. No phone call. 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock rolls around. And Bill, you know, Bill and Ann are like, he's drinking. You know, Ann want to go find him. And Bill's like, what are you going to do? And all of a sudden, Bob walks in, stone cold sober. He was doing the one thing that made him fail at the Oxford group for years. He was making his amends that night. So he made it to his work associates, all of them, over, over an hour in the hospital making amends to those work associates. The family, the friends, door to door. He didn't text them or email them. Well, they have it then. He didn't text them or email them or call them on the phone. Face to face, cold calling, knocking on the door, making amends. That's what I did. And of course, he went to his patients' houses, the ones he feared would help him lose his practice. He, he went to the, even to the Oxford group and made group amends and one-on-ones with the Oxford group. You know, I didn't mention before, you know, forgot, and I found it very interesting. When he made amends to the Oxford group, um, one of the things he felt really bad about, you know, being a secret drinker, you know, was one of them, but also, his main motivation for going to the Oscar group wasn't doing the Oscar group tennis. He thought I might be able to find more clients. He's a doctor. That's not going to get you what you want there, you know? And he felt bad about that because he knew about, he said, one of his stories already, he said about three Oxford group meetings in, he felt, I don't think I'm doing the right thing here, but he kept going. He felt bad. And then he heard the restitution part. But he went to any lengths that night and made amends. He didn't care about his medical reputation being on the line or losing his practice. He just wanted to be sober more than anything in the world. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care what anyone thought. And he knew something was special about Bill. And it was his, perhaps might be his only chance, his last chance to stay sober. 
after these amends, he never drank again. His last drink before the surgery was shot in the beer. June 10th, 1935 is known as the founding date of Alcoholics Anonymous. Back to the forward. He sobered up, never to drink again, up to the moment of his death in 1950. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another alcoholic as no alcoholic, non-alcoholic could. Underline that sentence. This proved that one alcoholic could affect another alcoholic as no non-alcoholic could. Drinker to drinker, allergy to allergy. He's talking about there. It also indicates a strenuous work. One alcoholic helping another was vital to print recovery. What do they do when you go to the hospital and your 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 heart's beating fast and you think you have a heart attack? They take your vitals to see if you're alive. He's saying it's vital to permanent recovery. It's vital that we sponsor in these rooms. It's vital we take people to the steps. In 15 years sober, Dr. Bob worked with over 5,000 alcoholics. I would say that's strenuous work. And he loved it. Yeah, so he loved it. He snuck people with Sister Ignacia. They would sneak people into the hospital with, with fake elements, stomach elements, and you know whatever he could make up because the hospitals wouldn't let him in. Just amazing. Amazing. The work they had in Sister Ignacia did at the hospital is amazing. Hence, the two men set out almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving to the ward at the, at the Akron City Hospital. Think about how many people came to that ward. Their, the, the, their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became A number three. He never drank. He never had another drink. Uh, so we're going to stop there. So next week, we're going to scoot up to a vision for you. And we're going to read about A number three and A number four and probably A number five. And we're going to look at, by name, the first 40 members, a very close look at the first 40 members and how, you know, where there was, and I can say failures, because I don't like that word, whether it was where they had success with members and where people weren't getting it and what changed and stuff. Recording stopped. There's a lot of information there. It's took me a long time doing book studies to get as much information out of the forwards as I, as I can do today. But there's a lot of information there if you dig for it. My name's Richard, I'm alcoholic. Thanks, Steve. You did a uh, you did a great job. I uh, I always hear what I need to hear at a meeting, and I logged on a little early. It's kind of interesting. I was talking to Rob there uh, about working with a uh, a hopeless alcoholic. I mean, the guy's a hundred percent powerless over alcohol. He just he can't stop drinking, or won't stop drinking. I, I'm not sure which one it is, but you know, you talked about that our work is just a avocation and and uh and no stress and um yeah when i was talking to rob so you know sometimes i forget that this work helps me more than it helps the guy that i'm working with you know so um that really struck a chord with me when you said no stress and you know sometimes i get a little stressed out when when i'm working with people they show up 30 seconds late and i'm thinking huh, you know because i'm still selfish and it's still about me and and uh sometimes i forget it's like man this might help you stay sober more than it's going to help him stay sober you know so the guy says would you mind if i go smoke a cigarette before we get started reading the book i'm like huh you know so still after all these years i'm i'm uh i'm still learning how selfish i am you know and that um you know, our greatest defense against against the first drink is uh, is working with other people. But um, uh, it's sad to see 
this guy struggle, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I, I know what my limitations are, you know, I'm not God, so I can't get people sober, but anyway, it's great to be here with you guys. I always enjoy logging in and, uh, getting my pen and highlighter out and underlining and, and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the Joe and Charlie, uh, tapes and studies and, the and the, uh, the Joe McHugh, the steps we took is, is uh is an, another great uh learning tool for anybody that's new so good to be here thanks brother thank you thanks for coming who's next hi steve fernando alcoholic hey fernando you know that uh the growth the, the millions of people that have been in AA or the growth chart, that was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I know of a lot of groups because of the uh, autonomy. Uh, they're not registered. You know, there's a lot of groups that are not registered. Is there any other count that you can, uh, you know, of that probably a more uh, unregistered groups and all the private groups that we have all over the place? Yeah, it's, it's impossible for them. I mean, there's thousands and there's... Who knows how many thousands of groups there's? There's one guy that there's a story that Don Brown, my grandfather, used to tell. He met a guy that was a member of the, I can't remember his name. I don't know if anyone would, but he was they, he was a member from from Ireland, and they sent him to Ireland to start the first A group there, and how they made sure that. It stayed connected to Alcoholics Anonymous, but what happened was when we went back there, like 15 years later, there was, there were, they thought there was 12 groups and there was like 50. Mm. And you go to South Africa, there was groups there that were happening, but not registered. And even in California, I mean, United States, it happens. There's some people that get mad at A and it's, you know, because all the, because you get the A police showing up to their meeting and tell them, you can't talk big book there and all this stuff it happens and they take their name off of the schedule a takes them off the schedule but they're still going to do their meeting my my the don, my don b my grand sponsor was one of them took his, his big books stay off the schedule he kept doing it more people came <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what happens you know you can imagine yeah there's lots of groups and it's you know and some some groups just don't know that you're supposed to call up the service center and say, "Hey, we want to be on AA," and they just started. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I knew one group up the street over at Cornerstone by from my house. They were meeting there almost six years, and they had about twenty people there. And someone says, "You guys aren't on the AA schedule," and he goes, "Oh, really?" And we thought, we, you know, next thing you know, there's kind of a schedule and got bigger, and they moved. You know, it happens. Yeah, and then there's another number I always wondered about, you know, the uh, the amount of people that wake up and then they go out and they start different groups. What do we got, about 60 spinoffs off the 12th step? They can't... Oh, God. Well, the m most famous one, of course, is Narcotics Anonymous, you know, and um, that's an interesting, that's a whole story with Jimmy K and Jimmy Keon and how that started. And he was actually a good friend of Bill and Bill Hand picked him because he was uh see they had meetings called the Addicts Anonymous in the forties, but the problem why Bill did not endorse it was because addicts weren't allowed to be in a group together. Mm. It was against the law. So there was a secret group and they called them bridge meetings and they would let those guys go there and then when they said, Hey, I think we'd be best if we weren't a part of AA, we did our own thing and you know, they used the big book and and he picked Jimmy Keon because he liked him and Jimmy K. And then the same thing happened over the years. It just, I mean, Overeaters Anonymous uses the big book and all the groups use the big book. I mean, Cocaine Anonymous started, I think, in Iceland. I don't know if I'm right on that. I think it's Iceland. And they started it because the police came out to them. So they said, you know, we're trying to single some purpose stuff and they didn't know what to call it first. They had over 60 meetings under their belt before they even had a name for it. And then they called it Cocaine Anonymous. And, you know, you have Gamblers Anonymous, you have Sex Addicts Anonymous, you have 
meth anonymous now. They got marijuana anonymous, you know, so many. So debit, debit, uh, debit, debit anonymous, shopping, uh, shopping anonymous. Yeah. I got, I got married in the program, so I got marriage anonymous there. It works. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Doug. Hey, Doug, thanks, Steve. It was always awesome. And uh, a lot of information there. Just a question you mentioned about your your sponsor, Don. Had a big book meeting, but the AA police came after him? Well, here's what happened. So we we have a guy in our area. This guy in our area took over as... as, um, No, it's not being recorded. I don't care. This guy in our area took over as the service center at the height of Joe and Charlie, right? And you, he was your typical 1970s, what they, so in the 70s and AA, they really got away from the message because all the rehabs. Right, in recovery, right. The recovery, the rehab. Jargon. You know, message and they, you know, and the, and the group therapy was big and the recovery boom happened. And this guy was a part of that. And he did not like Joe and Charlie. He didn't like the A message being, he says that everything should be between a sponsor and that's it. The truth was, is he never did the steps. I mean, I talked to him before, but anyways, he ran like a tire and he took Joe and Charlie out of the libraries, the public library and out of the A library we have at our service center. And he told my grand sponsor, so he didn't believe that I'd, one or two people book study like I do was a, was a good idea because it's, it's a group you're shutting out the group and you're showing people, you know, more than they do and all this stuff and took them off. But you know what he did? <laughs> he went to aid in New York and called them up and he told them and they said, Oh, we'll put you on the schedule. And that next month the guy, they're on a the schedule and he's like, how do you get a schedule? And he called New York. There's nothing he could do about it. You know, so if that ever happens to you, that's a secret right there. But the other thing he said to the guy, and the, yeah, he says, well, I thought, he goes, you know. <laughs> How did he have the power, though? How did he have the power to? He, he was the, the, the um, service center director for, for the county. Wow. He runs the county. We have over 400 meetings a month in our county. And um, kind of across the county where I live. And... Um, Actually, some 400 meetings. No, if we have 400 meetings a month, and it's like 100 something meetings a day. It's all the place, and we have a big AA NA presence as well. So it's huge in this area. And he just yeah. Once you're service center director, you can do all. You can, there's a lot of stuff that people get away with. And but then you go over to Stockton, where I live over here, and that's you know that's a real crazy neck of the woods. We have Joe and Charlie meetings there with us and the recordings of them and stuff. There's one meeting over in Stockton where the guy gets on there and he says, um, in their preamble, they have, if you haven't been your fist up, please don't talk. Because you got nothing to say. Yeah. And that's pretty harsh, but that's what the way they are. You know, yeah. but if that happened here, you know, he sends his people that sit in on the meetings and if you're not following his way and the AA way and... It's just a power trip. It's, he's a perfect example of why Bill Wilson wrote the traditions. You know, because he said, Bill stated on more than one occasion that people were coming in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they were coming in there who never had, never been a boss, never had any power, maybe never even had any friends. And they get to in there, welcome. Hey, do you want to be the secretary? And that goes to their head. And, they, you know, and people got control problems. How- happens yeah. I'm the coffee maker yeah <laughs> so one other question you know on the anonymity you know basis right it says at the level of press radio and films but yet we sit and nobody shares their last initial I mean granted we're right now on the web and I guess that could be at the level of uh, film or you know certainly at the public level we, we don't know who's watching right but in a general AA meeting it always kind of boggled my mind that well, why are we anonymous amongst ourselves that's a you know I mean, well I mean I explained it to my brother recently I, I said to him I, I said uh, to my brother 
um, hey, I saw such and such in the meeting, and my brother really remember me, and he goes, oh, it's supposed to be anonymous. I said, no, we're not on press radio and film. I go, you're not press radio and film. I'm just saying I saw one of your, you know, someone you know there. I don't go around telling people that I'm pretty, you know, pretty cool about that, but it's someone that he cares about. And, but the main thing is, Dr. Bob and Bill hated the aspect that people did not tell their last name. Because they were leaving a thing in Cleveland, I think, in 45. And the guy says, hey, when you're in town, look up Jimmy, you know, Johnny J. And and then they start walking away and Dr. Bob starts laughing. And he goes, Bill goes, what? And he goes, you know, like Johnny J's that are in Cleveland is what the guy goes in the hospital. Oh, we're looking for Johnny J. <laughs> it's just like, it makes, it's mind-boggling, you know? And it was so mind-boggling me. It blew my mind when I would hear, it shows you how dense A is away from the message. When I heard someone say their full name, I'm like, that guy can't do that. He said, recovered? You can't do that either. You know, because I was brainwashed into that, you know? And I didn't start saying my full name probably until three years into it and when I really got into sponsorship and they started recognizing all these guys were doing it and I was like, why not? You know, and then it was recovered alcoholic because I was, you know, and it's not, I, I got to the point, you know, I think maybe it's because I, once I turned over 50, I didn't care what people thought anymore about me too much, you know, I really don't, you know, and it's just, uh, it is what it is. You know, it's, it, 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 that's a great, I mean, subject that I've heard a lot of people that don't think they know, but, you know, and I had a guy get very mad at Big Book Compendium where we clearly state in our preamble that we're not affiliated with AA or anything else because we wanted Big Book Compendium just to be a big book group that's open to anyone for, you know, all the love you want is here, you know, type thing. And this guy did for whatever reason, started spreading stuff about me and vicious lies and stuff that I had to call him on the phone. And the funniest thing was I called him up and, you know, back in the day, I would have called him. I said, listen, you mother, I would have got mad at him. Instead, I called him up and I was like, I wasn't angry when it happened. I was just like, called him. I said, hey, I go, what's the problem here? And, and I was really calm with him and he didn't know what to say. And he called me back two hours later and he goes, Steve, man, he goes, I can't get you out of my mind. He goes, you had every right to jump down my throat and be mean and be rude to me, but you weren't. You were totally calm. And I just got to, you know, commend you on that. But I still can't be a part of it. He <laughs> said, but it's, it's, it's amazing it's, how, how how many angry people there are out there. I don't want to say what my friend calls the people. He calls them tradition. I say the H word. Um, tradition, yeah, lovers will call it. You know, people that think they know the traditions but really don't. Like that guy at the service center did not know the word autonomous. Autonomous means you're not, you know, am I, who am I hurting? You know? If I have a meeting down the street and I and I call Big Book Study and, and the guy takes it off of the schedule and it's me doing it, which is their right to do, um, I'd like to know what A groups I'm hurting and who am I hurting in AA by doing that, you know? That's what my grand sponsor told the guy and the guy, did, he, I think he's more upset that his friends are near him and he's making him look like a fool, you know? And my grand sponsor was the calmest guy in the world. You know, it's just, it's just a, like, like I said, it makes me sick earlier in the book study that so many people don't know what the message is of Alcoholics Anonymous or the program or that there's a way out, you know, and I go to, I go to quite a bit of meetings and I love meetings until I, they start making me depressed. You know, it makes me sad because I, if I could touch everyone and heal them, I would, I would do it, but I can't. I got a lot of guys I buried over the years that I tried to take to the steps, you know, and my best friend I had to bury a couple of years ago, you know, it's hard. 
it's hard. And he was the guy that showed me the big book. He was the guy that said, hey, do this. He goes, he handed me the big book. He says, this is your life wrath, but eventually be the net you cast out the men. Exact words he said. And uh, a typical story of got away from it, started drinking again, and couldn't find his way back. Yeah, it happens. It it happens, you know, and I I think we're going to see more offshoots, cocaine anonymous style groups. We're going to see more of, of, um, you know, drug acts, anonymous style groups. And there's only a couple that use the big book though, right? Is it, is it DAA? Uses the big book. Cocaine Office uses the big book. Uh, Overeaters Anonymous. Sex Acts Anonymous. Now, it gets confusing because there's... There's method... There's... There's methamphetamine anonymous, and then there's meth anonymous. And I think meth anonymous uses the big book. (laughs) But all these ones started using the big book. I didn't know there was a difference. It's, It's fascinating, and... And um, I study that quite, you know, quite closely. And I went to my first Cocaine Anonymous meeting in that crazy town of Stockton by me, city of Stockton by me, and it was rowdy. And then the guy got up and spoke and you could hear a pin drop and he stood and he walked around the room and he spoke how he, you know, did this action and it changed his life. He never once mentioned the drugs he did or alcohol he did. We had a lady come in here, if you can find it on YouTube, our YouTube thing, Sarah L. from Sweden. There's two Sarah L's from Sweden. It's Stockholm Sarah, her name is. And I did not know until 20 minutes into her share, speaking big book, that she was an overeater. She never mentioned, she just went right into the solution. And it was the best, one of the best shows I've ever heard. You know, and it was just like, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. I'm like, did I miss something in the beginning? You know, that she said at the beginning. And and she said, I'm like hopelessly obsessed or something like that. Recovered from being off something. It was some word she said. 